Well, good morning. That really is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, I think, that first chapter of Hebrews. Somebody, a good friend of mine, observed that in that chapter there are seven glories and there are uh, se- seven glories and then seven references, seven crowns. And the crowns are the first seven crowns are in the first few verses, and then the seven glories are the quotations of Old Testament passages in those remaining verses. And it all speaks to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he's better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, and then the rest of the book goes on to show how he's better. Everything about him is better than everything and everyone that preceded, and all the covenants and the administrations and and everything that was before, he's better than all of that. It's a chapter worth studying, and we'll come back to that here in a little bit. But we're going to continue in our first love series. And just by way of recap, we had, so this is the fourth message in the series. So the first message, we had an urging to direct our hearts toward him. The second message, we had an encouragement to delight ourselves in him. And the third message last week, we had a call to devote ourselves to him, our duty and exertion of the will in love. And then today, we're going to have a warning not to depart from him. A warning not to depart from him. And so I want to look with you at the five warnings that are given in the book of Hebrews, briefly, and just to lay the foundation, and then we're going to jump to an example uh, in the Old Testament in Israel's history, in the course of redemptive history, and look at an, an example, specific example, so we can draw some conclusions from that. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Hebrews. I'm going to go briefly through each of the five warnings there, and they are progressive warnings. It progresses all the way from the the first warning is not so bad, it might seem on the surface, but then once we get to number five, it's total apostasy and rejection of the Lord altogether. So I'm not sure where these five warnings, who first observed them, I've seen them and heard them a a number of places, but they didn't come from me. Uh, So before we go dive in, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you and exalt you so much better than the angels. To which of the angels said the Father at any time, Thou art my son, and this day I have begotten thee? None. The answer is none. It's a rhetorical question, and no one is greater or better than you. And so we look to you this morning just acknowledging what's already been said and read concerning your commandments and your law and your statutes, your rules, your judgments, your word altogether, it's good. And it says in another place, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on and so forth. All those glorious things that are declared of your word. And we wish to hear from you this morning, and we pray that you'd speak to us, that you would give us open and willing hearts, and that we would heed the warnings, the repeated warnings that are given in your word and the warning that you have 
for us this morning so that we can walk worthy of our calling, so that we can be faithful unto the end, and so that we can honor you with our lives and love you truly with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you're after, and that's what we're after. So we pray that you'd speak to us this morning, pierce our hearts, and leave us shaken and grant us repentance that leads to more abundant life and walking with you more intimately, more deeply, with a greater willingness to hear and obey your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So the five warnings are warnings against neglect is the first one, a warning against unbelief, a warning against dullness, a warning against willful sin, and a warning against rejection of the Lord altogether. So the first warning comes right after that chapter 1 that Elijah read. And it concludes all that and says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Closer than what? Well, closer than the fathers did. It says in verse 1 that the Lord spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but they didn't listen. Like Stephen says in Acts, he says that you always grieved and rejected the Holy Spirit, and you and our fathers, you didn't listen at all. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or another translation says, lest we should let them slip. And what the Greek actually says is, run out as leaking vessels, lest we should let these things we've heard run out of us like leaking vessels. Why? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then it says it was declared first by the Lord. So if that message was weighty and necessary to be heeded and to be listened to and obeyed under the old covenant and the old administration, then how much more, how much more weighty is it for us under the new covenant if we should neglect so great a salvation? So the first warning, drifting from the word of truth, that's neglect. And that word there that's neglect actually means to make light of. It's used in Matthew 22, and that's how it's translated there, to make light of, to count it as somewhat of a trivial thing. So then the second warning is in Hebrews chapter 3. In verse 7, it says, and this is the warning against unbelief. So we've got neglect, and here's unbelief. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it goes on further with that warning through chapter 4, verse 13. 
So that's, this is the warning against doubting the word of truth, unbelief. It starts with neglect, drifting, continues and progresses into unbelief with doubting. And then in chapter 5, the third warning is discounting the word of truth. It's a dullness. In verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And that continues on through verse 20, that warning. So you've got drifting from the word, neglect, doubting the word, unbelief, and discounting the word, counting it as a light thing, dullness, dullness. And then it goes on and becomes considerably more severe in chapter 10, probably one of the most severe warnings in the Bible, I would say, and one of the most difficult passages that a lot of people have wrestled with and some people use this passage to try to justify the principle that you could lose your salvation, which is not what the passage is saying. It's simply saying that you, if you follow this path, you may find out that you never had it to begin with. So he says, because this, is, this book is written to believers, and he's saying we, the writer's saying we in the passage. So it's a warning for every one of us all professing believers. It says, so this is the warning against despising the word of truth. It's willful sin. Sinning intentionally, deliberately, hearing God's voice and saying, no, I'm going to do this anyway. It says in verse 26, chapter 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? So there's that comparison again, just like in the beginning in chapter 2, when it said that we let us give the more earnest heed or pay much closer attention because we have something better. So it's the same thing here. The law of Moses, but now this is the new covenant. So how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a frightening passage, and as well it should be, because it's speaking of willful and intentional disregarding of God's word and saying, I I don't care, I'm going to do this anyway. And it goes through and it describes what a person is actually doing when they do that, trampling underfoot the Son of God, doing despite 
to the spirit of grace and counting the blood of the covenant wherewith they've been sanctified an unholy thing. So it goes neglect, unbelief, dullness, willful sin, despising the word. And the last step is discarding the word of truth altogether. Rejection, total rejection, outright rejection, apostasy. That's given in Hebrews 12. And we're going to come across a familiar character here in Esau. We talked about this some weeks ago when we discussed him despising the birthright and then losing the blessing because he said, well, I don't need that silly birthright. And he rejected it altogether. And then later he realized what he had done, but it was too late. He's given as the example here. It says in chapter 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." And here's another comparison again. It's the comparison between the old Mount Sinai and the new Mount Zion. For if you, you, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is describing Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. And this is the order. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So that's the last step. That's the last step. It starts out small, trivial, and seemingly insignificant with just, with just a little bit of neglect here and there, a little bit of accounting it as a light thing, the Lord's word, his commandments, what he said, his law, his requirements of us. We just, I don't have time for that, or, or we excuse it, or make some justification for some sin that we permit. But we have to look and see what the end of that trajectory is, the end of that road. And that's what the, this progression of these five warnings gives us. That the end of the road for neglecting the Lord eventually, step by step by step, if you continue all the way down that path, then it leads to an outright rejection. And that's what we're going to see in this example that we look at with Israel and specifically with Judah. If you turn over to Jeremiah in your Bibles... This is the time period that we're going to examine. This example from history from the time of Jeremiah is the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
So this happens, this is all Jeremiah's prophesying to the nation of Judah during this time, the southern kingdom. The, is, the kingdom was divided in 930 B.C., and it was incidentally divided because they had forsaken the Lord and gone after idols. And so the kingdom split up, and you know, Israel was already gone at this point and conquered, and now Judah remained in the southern kingdom. And so this, this spans the time from 627 B.C. to 586 B.C. It begins with King Josiah's reign and the ends with King Zedekiah, who is the last king before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So what happens is they're, they're attacked by Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. They come from the north. They attack them, and many of God's people, Judah, they die by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Those three are repeated throughout Jeremiah. And then there's the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem altogether. So this is at the end. This is, in, this is what happens at the very end, 586. I'm giving you a sneak peek at the ending. And then they go into exile in Babylon. And it's both a physical and a spiritual captivity. We'll get to that in a second, more on that. So, but why? Why did this happen? Why did the Lord do this to his people? The prevailing theme repeated over and over throughout the book of Jeremiah and really throughout Old Testament redemptive history is that they forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord. They went after other gods to serve and to worship them. And so really at the beginning of Jeremiah, they're already, after Josiah, during Josiah's time, he did all these reforms to revive the hearts of the people and direct their hearts back to the Lord. But by that time, they were really already at step number five that we just covered of, of outright rejection. I mean, you see it throughout the book of Jeremiah that he's telling them, he's warning, he's giving them these warnings, he's prophesying the word of the Lord, and it says over and over that they didn't listen or that they rejected, that they just outright said, oh, we don't care, we're not going to do that. So they, they've already progressed through the, those five steps and gotten to rejection. And so I want to read a few of these passages from Jeremiah just of the Lord, uh, the Lord articulating exactly what his people had done that warranted this kind of judgment and discipline, punishment. It says in chapter 1, verse 16... The Lord's speaking to Jeremiah here. He says, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. And then in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 12, this is going back to what Ben highlighted and read a few weeks ago. It says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And this is why. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, that's number one. And number two, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's an interesting phrase that's used there, uh, especially if you think back to what we read from Hebrews 2, where it says that we should give the more earnest heed lest we let those things slip or lest we let the things that we've received run out as leaking vessels. It's the same concept here. They, so, because those who make them become like them. And so if you worship leaking vessels that can hold no water, then you become 
a leaking vessel yourself that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. And chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, it says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? This is pretty severe here. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all these, all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives... Yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Walk in it. And find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set a watchman over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. Chapter 8, verse 4. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Second time it said that. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 6. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. 
For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned, their back, they have turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. It's amazing how many times if you just go through how many times you can highlight the word hear, listen, hear, listen, hear, listen in Jeremiah over and over again. They didn't do it. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many of the, as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Chapter 15. Verse 1, then the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he set up altars and idols and made the people to go astray. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me. There's that word again, rejected. You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I've made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I've brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I've made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. And the last one I'm going to cover is chapter 16, verse 10. It says, and when you tell this people all these words, this is he speaking, the Lord speaking to Jeremiah here, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? You see, that's what a dull and a cold heart says. What did I, I, what did I do wrong? But they knew, they knew. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says, this is what you shall say to them. Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into another that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night. 
for I will show you no favor. So that's the, that's the physical and the spiritual captivity. He says, you're going to go because you wanted to worship other gods. Go. You will go worship other gods. You're going into exile, into the land of Babylon. And not only are you going to exile in there with your body, you're going to exile in there in your heart. And you're going to worship other gods there. I'm going to give you over to it. So there are, three, there are three stages of this exile. That, that was all those, all those verses just emphasize the why. This is why the Lord was doing this. Because his people had committed these sins and forsaking them. And this is what eventually he was going to do to them, was send them into exile. But there are three stages of that. Because the Lord executes his judgment or his discipline or his correction. He always does it in stages. And he gives multiple chances for repentance. And he's merciful like that. Repeated opportunities to repent, he gives them. So the first invasion was in 605 B.C., this invasion of Judah. It was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And this was when Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon. If you go and correlate this with Daniel chapter 1, that's when this was happening, 605 B.C., the first invasion of Judah. And Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum were also prophesying during this time. By 605 B.C., Jeremiah had been prophesying for 23 years calling the people to repentance. And so, thus we have the Lord's repeated refrain, though I persistently sent to them all my servants, the prophets. It says that over and over in Jeremiah and elsewhere in the scripture. Though I persistently sent to them and spoke to them through my servants, the prophets. That's what it said in Hebrews 1 that we read. He spoke in times past to our fathers through the prophets over and over and over. That's what Stephen says before they kill him. But they wouldn't listen. But they wouldn't listen. So we have an account of this first invasion in chapter 25 of Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 
70 years. So we have that, again, I've spoken persistently to you, persistently, over and over, through my servants, the prophets, but you haven't listened. And then an interesting add-on given at the end of verse 7 is that he says that they did these things to provoke him to anger, but they did it to their own harm. It's the self-destructiveness of sin that's so foolish that we don't see and it doesn't feel like in the moment. But sin is self-destructive like that. Every time that we don't listen to the Lord, that we transgress his commands and his law, we sin against ourselves and it's for, it harms us, destroys us. So there's, it's a twofold thing. There's discipline from the Lord where he lets things happen, but then there are natural consequences too. Because it's going against the grain of the way that the Lord designed the world. So, and then those 70 years of captivity are prophesied there at that first invasion. And the 70 years would begin at the end of the third invasion. So that's the first one, 605 BC. Then the second one, and, and so keep in mind that all throughout this time, Jeremiah and all these other prophets, they're continuing to tell the people, this is what you've done. Repent and turn to the Lord. And then they're seeing the effects of what has happened because they haven't turned to the Lord. They've rejected the Lord. They've forsaken the Lord. So they've got a, a message that they're hearing and then they've got physical things that they're seeing. So in 597, the second invasion, King Jehoiakim, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar and his army besiege Jerusalem. Now this is this is when Ezekiel and the 10,000 captives and, and are taken. And it's really interesting if you look at a timeline and see all, how all these different books of the Bible and these events that are given come together in the timeline. It's really awesome to just look at and to see that, the whole history of it and how each piece fits together. It's a bit difficult to see if you just read it straight through. But if you look at a timeline and then you grab a piece here, a piece here, then you see how it all fits together. And so... 597, that's when Ezekiel was taken and the 10,000 captives and, and really everyone who was important, anyone who was anybody, all the nobles and all the you know, middle class people, they're all taken. And then they take treasures and vessels from the Lord's house. Only the poorest people of the land are left. Jehoiachin, which is Jehoiakim's son, he's king for three months during that time. He's taken to Babylon. Then finally Zedekiah is made king, who's Jehoiakim's uncle, and he's king for 11 years until that, the third invasion. And that's the last one, the third invasion in 586 B.C. Now at this point, Jeremiah has been prophesying for 41 years. 41 years, and all these things happen to him during that time. You know, he's persecuted, he's put in prison, he's beaten, all these things, in addition to what he's saying being completely rejected. So all that happens. <clears throat> and then, so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes and, and he slaughters Zedekiah's sons but right in front of his eyes, and then he blinds him, he puts out his eyes, takes him to Babylon, and Jeremiah actually warns Zedekiah that this very thing was going to happen. If you don't surrender to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar, then you're going to be, you're going to die. If you surrender, then you'll have your life as a prize for war. If you don't surrender, then you're going to die. And he completely ignores him, and that's what happens. So he gets taken away to Babylon. 
And so they broke down the temple, all, took all the remaining valuables. They broke down the city wall, which later Ezra and Nehemiah come to rebuild. You can read about that in those books. And then they burned the city with fire. They burned the temple, the king's house, all the people's houses, and they left only the poorest of the poor in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And Jeremiah remains there as well. And so that brings us to all that was just to get us to Jeremiah 44, which is what I want to emphasize uh, so after that 586 and that, that final exile, and the, there are still these poorest of the poor there, the remaining people. And they're afraid of the Chaldeans, so they're intending to go to Egypt. They think that they're going to, that's never a good idea. N- they never find refuge in Egypt. It's a, th- a theme throughout. It's not good to go to Egypt. You don't go back to Egypt, back, back to slavery. So, but they intend to do that, and then Jeremiah warns them against that. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he says, all who go, who intend to go to Egypt, if you go, if you set your face to go to Egypt, you will die by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So they were going because they feared the sword, famine, and pestilence. And Jeremiah said, if you go, then exactly what you fear is going to come upon you because you're not obeying the voice of the Lord and you're not trusting in the Lord. And they go anyway. Imagine that. They take Jeremiah with them. And so here's what happened. That brings us to the beginning of chapter 44. So all these people have gone to Egypt. They're there in Egypt. And it says in chapter 44, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt, at Migdal, at Taphnes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because, this is why, because of all the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet, here it is again, I persistently sent to you all my servants the prophets saying, oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. It's, almost, it's the warning and a plea at the same time. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Tears over this. He's pleading with them, don't do this thing that I hate, please. It's for your own destruction. Angers me and it's for your own destruction. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? So he's reminding them. He's reminding them all the evil that they committed even when they were in the land, even before they were exiled, before all this destruction and all this disaster happened. The evil they committed, and then they kept committing it, and then the disaster and the destruction came. And then he says, They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers.
So it's interesting. It's interesting here that it says, it's talking about them in verse 5 when they, they go after other gods. They did not listen or incline their ear, turn from their evil, and make offerings to other gods. Now we look, I, I was thinking about this this week. The Lord does this on purpose where we look at Israel and redemptive history and, and them going after these other gods, physical gods usually that they erected, that they built up, that they made offerings to. And we look at that and think, that is so stupid. What was wrong with them? Because it's so obvious to us when we look back on it. But it's obvious because, for one thing, it's always obvious in hindsight. But for another thing, they're different kinds of idols than we have. So our idols and our folly is just as foolish. It's just as absurd. We just don't see it because we're in it. And because of the blindness of our hearts and our own heart lusts. So we don't think, we don't see it as so ridiculous and absurd. Here they are, and we're about to see, making offerings, making cakes, baking cakes to the queen of heaven. Baking cakes to some fake god they're doing. Now we look at that, and that's, oh, that's so stupid. They were Neanderthals then. They didn't really understand. We're much more advanced. We have other gods that we worship. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And the Lord intends for us to see the stupidity and the foolishness and the absurdity of their worship of these other gods so that we can recognize that our worship of our other gods is equally foolish and stupid, even if we can't feel it or see it because we're in it. We can believe it, and we can turn from it. And then the other thing is there's that phrase again in verse 7 I wanted to point out. Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves self-destructive so just by way of review here okay there have been multiple warnings by multiple prophets over the course of 60 plus years three separate sieges of the land multiple kings deposed or killed the temple's been destroyed all the treasures taken away it's been burned the houses all the houses of the city and the king's house have been burned. The city was destroyed. The wall was broken down. It's complete, like it says, it says that he's, in multiple places, that he's made it a byword, that he's made it a, a, a scourge, that he's made it this thing to be hissed at. That's how terrible that it's been up to this point. And after all that, there's the death of many people by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Almost everyone in Judah has been carried away to Babylon. After all that, what is the response of these people who remain? This is the response. Let me keep going through, through uh, verse, beginning of verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt they shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed from the least to the greatest. They shall die by the sword and by famine, and they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of them 
None of the remaining of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there where they shall not return except some fugitives. So all that, and then this is their response. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah. This, this, it makes me tremble. It should make you tremble, the answer that they give here. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Just brazen, absolutely brazen rejection. We don't care what he has to say. But we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. As we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and we've been consumed by the sword and by famine. Stupidity of their sin. They don't even see the consequence connected to their own sin. They think, well, this is because we haven't been offering to the right God. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image, and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, As for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, this is why your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It's because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord. You did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. That's why. That's why. Not because you weren't offering cakes to the queen of heaven rightly. And then he concludes with this. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord. This is the most terrifying part of the chapter, maybe the whole book. All you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. So that's what they said. And this is what he says. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Go ahead. Go ahead. If that's what you want to do, go ahead. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. All you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt, behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt saying, as the Lord God lives, behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. So he says, finally, at last, go ahead. He gives them over. The Lord gives them over. Confirm your vows. Perform your vows. Go ahead. You see, because the Lord, despite all of the gracious and merciful warning and discipline and chastening, He never forces. Man has a responsibility to respond to him in obedience from the heart. And he's not going to force it. And there comes a point where 
he says, okay, go ahead. It's like, it's like the Romans one. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over three times. That's one of the most fearful things is when God allows a person to ignore and reject his voice and he says to them, in essence, as you wish. So they rejected the word of the Lord to their own hurt and it's always to our own hurt. And I want to look at this principle illustrated, not illustrated, explained. That was the illustration. We're going to look at the explanation in Proverbs chapter 1. It says in verse 20, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate she speaks. This is what she says. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. This is wisdom speaking, personified. Because I have called and you refuse to listen... There it is again, refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. Then they will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. It's the self-destruction. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Well, that's wisdom talking. And, and she speaks again in Proverbs chapter 8. In verse 32, it says, Now, sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Nobody would really say, I love death. But effectively, that's what every one of us says whenever we reject the voice of the Lord, whenever we reject wisdom. We really do behave as someone who loves death because that's the ultimate outcome. So wisdom, just like we see throughout Jeremiah, wisdom's not forceful, but will give the person over to their folly. It's the same, same principle so that's a, a biblical example of that progression. What happens when you begin to neglect and eventually you get all the way to rejection. That's what the people did during that time. Tragic. It's tragic. And, and really, the, we see so much of this in our modern day here in America, in the world we see that so much. It's, I mean, don't, sometimes don't you just look around and you see things going on and you're like, how can people think that? How is that? I mean, I understand that people are, 
you know, we look around and say, I, I get that people are lost and they can't see, but, but some things are so contrary to nature, so contrary to reason, so contrary to sense that you just say, how can that, how can that be? How, I mean, one day you can be a man and then tomorrow you can be a woman. And a woman, a, a man can breastfeed and have children and all this sort of just confusion, utter confusion and just hysteria. COVID hysteria, all this kind of stuff, you just look around and, and it doesn't make sense and you wonder, how is this possible? How is this happening? Because it's the same thing. It's wisdom laughing and saying, if you want to reject me, as you wish. And the, Lord, the Lord's given us over. He's, it's the only explanation for it. It's the only, you turn on the news, you just see something, you're like, What? I mean, you can't reason with someone who has a reprobate mind because they've been given over by the Lord to not be able to think clearly. But so my point is this, okay? So we see that. We see that clearly in the scriptures. We see the end, the end of that road of backsliding, of coldness of heart, of neglecting the Lord. That's the end of the road. It should be a byword to us, a warning and there is a significant measure in which we are culpable because the culture flows downstream from the church and should be influenced by it. And so the way that the culture is going, we bear some responsibility because we haven't influenced it as we should. And so anyway, I say all this, I make the, the example of Israel, the example of the world today to say, Look at the beginning point. Look, look at the end point, first of all. Rejection of the Lord. Complete rejection. And then go back to the beginning of the path and see that the very beginning of the path is just simple neglect. Just a slight small thing here. A small thing there. A toleration of this sin. An ignorance of the Lord's voice here. This thing is not that big of a deal. You know, I'm not going to go to church one Sunday. I'm not going to read my, I don't have time for my Bible today. I'll do it tomorrow. And then, but it, it, it multiplies and it, and it continues down that progression. So we, we need to see the ending point and, and see, check ourselves. Are we complicit in any way? Are we beginning to traverse down the path that leads to what we see the chaos all around. I read listen, and listen to Doug Wilson a lot, and he says, it's either Christ or chaos. That's it. Those are the two options. And so it's, we see the chaos all around, and so we need to set our faces like a flint to Christ. Let me not ignore him or neglect him or treat as a light thing any, anything that's in here, any of his commands, his instructions, his word to me, any of his requirements of me. Let me not treat them in, in any way with even the slightest contempt because I know that that's the end of the path. That's the end of the path. What we see here in redemptive history, these things are given for our instruction. And what we see all around us, that's the end of the path. So the, the point is, Back to Hebrews 2. Let us pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we should drift away from it, lest we should run out like leaking vessels. And, and why? The why is because 
it says in the beginning of Hebrews 1, like we read, that the Lord spoke in times past through, to our fathers through the prophets, but now he's spoken in these last days by his son. He's spoken by his son. And how shall we neglect so great a salvation? You see, we have so much more, a better word and a better covenant and a, a clearer view of Christ and more heavenly privileges than they ever had. So how much more should we be careful not to neglect. And we must avoid at all costs the first sign of neglect or making light of God's commands in his word. The first sign. We tend to treat, nothing's really trivial in the Lord's sight. No disobedience is tri trivial in the Lord's sight. No ignorance, no neglect. I mean, how did, the, how did sin enter the world they ate a piece of fruit, and people point to that. Non-believers point to that, and, and they point out that they, it's ridiculous. They think it's so ridiculous. Well, how could that be? Because of the heinousness of defying or ignoring a holy God, whatever the command is. And so we have to see our own sin in that same light. Every, every neglect, every beginning down that path well, eventually, if I followed it all the way and I didn't repent and I didn't turn, it would lead to total rejection of the Lord. That's why it says in Proverbs 4, verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it and pass on. I tell this to my son all the time. I tell him not, you know, don't step on that stair. And he'll get right there, right up to the stair, not step on this. But that misses the point. It misses the spirit of the command. It's not obedience from the heart. It's getting as close to the path of evil as you can without stepping on it. But we avoid it altogether. Not only am I not going to walk on it, I'm not going to go near it. And I'm certainly not going to set a foot on it, just a little bit of neglect, because I look down the road and I see where it ultimately ends. It says, Proverbs 22, verse 3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So as we just bring it to a close here, the, it's important for us to see, and you guys can come on back up, it's important for us to see the end of the path. What ultimately happens if we follow all the way down the road of, of just very beginnings of neglecting the Lord, it's important for us to see, not so that we have this perpetual fear that we might not be saved or that we're going to where <clears throat> Saul is commanded to go and destroy the Amalekites. And he's, de he's commanded to devote them to utter destruction. Destroy everything, everyone, man, woman, child, every animal, and, and every single thing. And he doesn't. He spares the king, and he spares the best of everything, because he says, oh, I want to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And then the Lord tears the kingdom away from him, because he didn't obey that command. But one of the points of that is not to spare at all. The people of the, the Amalekites were evil, wicked, wicked, and they should have been devoted to destruction. And likewise, the sin in our lives must be devoted to destruction. Every little thing, every small thing is not small 
eventually. And to that end, I want to read this brief passage from The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. If I can find it, page 30. He says that sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery, if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Men may come to that. That sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts. That is, provoking to any great sin with scandal in its mouth. But every rise of lust, might it have its course, would become the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin by which it prevails to the hardening of men and so to their ruin. He references Hebrews chapter 3. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals, but having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presseth on to some further degrees in the same kind. This new acting and pressing forward makes the soul take little notice of what an entrance is already made to a falling off of God. It thinks all is indifferent well, if there be no further progress. And so far as the soul is made insensible, insensible to any sin, that is, as to such a scene as the gospel requires, so far it is hardened. But sin is still pressing forward, and that because it has no bounds but utter relinquishment of God and opposition to him. That it proceeds towards its height by degrees, making good the ground it has got by hardness, is not from its nature, but from its deceitfulness. Now nothing can prevent this but mortification, putting it to death. That withers the root and strikes at the head of sin every hour so that it is crossed in whatever it aims at. There is not the best saint in the world, but if he should give over this duty, would fall into as many cursed sins as ever any did of his kind. Father, we praise you and we worship you for the grace of that you've shown to us in Christ Jesus in keeping us from being the worst of the worst because every one of us would be if it wasn't for your restraining grace and for you taking us and washing us in the blood of Christ and putting your law in our hearts and writing it on our minds and causing us to walk in your rules and your statutes and your judgments and strengthening us, filling us with your spirit we would all be the worst of villains, as the author says. And we want to take this word. It's a trembling and a fearful thought to fall into the hands of the living God and to see examples of those, those who are all around us and those who have in history. Make us, give us sensitive hearts, sensitive consciences, not paralyzing a kind of worldly sorrow that leads to death, but strengthening kind and convicting kind of godly sorrow that leads to life. I pray that you would convict every heart here and everyone who's absent even of sin that we've tolerated and 
any ways that we've neglected you and begun to walk down the path of rejection, down the path of backsliding, down the path of coldness of heart towards you. Warm our hearts and kindle a flame that can't be extinguished by the power of your spirit and, and fill us up with rivers of living water, not like vessels that run out, but that burst forth. And so I pray that you'd convict each of us of specific sins that need to be repented of and that you would trace them down to the root and grant us repentance of those things and that we would walk circumspectly, that we gird up the loins of our mind to be sober and walk in a manner worthy of our calling and so honor you and be examples to the world as the world is falling to pieces because of rejection of you, that we would be examples of the peace and the joy and the strength and the vigor and the life more abundant that comes from following you and walking in obedience to your voice. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.